0: many won't. For example, in in Romans 11, Paul warns the Gentiles against presuming their inclusion into God's family. If you guys are familiar with that passage, it says, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that is the Jews who do not believe, neither will he spare you. So there is something more than just reverence there. There is something there that is fear. Now the, the, the balancing issue comes here because a lot of the passages that we would commonly quote, like Hebrews 6, this passage, it's speaking to a church where the people preaching to them do not know who really believes. Right? There's the invisible church, the people that really believe in Jesus that are going to be saved. And then there's the, there's the visible church, right? The whole congregation. And out of that congregation, there might be people that don't believe and are just kind of they're raised in the church, or they they all their friends are at church or something like that. And they're kind of hiding. So passages will speak to both. And so in the same way, You could also say romans 11 is talking about that but there's a sense in which there is a command to the church to fear god second i worry that if we solve the fear of god problem too quickly and easily we miss out on the power of god that's what i think that the terror of god is is referencing the wrath of god right justice and mercy right the wrath of god answers those and the awe-inducing holiness of god his majesty right the fact that he is fearful God is to be feared, and there's a good reason the Bible uses fear instead of reverence or awe. We could translate them that way, right? We have English words that could translate it if that's what the Hebrew word meant. Sometimes they're synonyms, synonyms, but they're not always. So what does it mean to fear God? For starters, Scripture holds together this love of, this love of God and the fear of God with, with no real explanation. Um, it says this in Philippians 2.12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God's at work in you. That's a wonderful thing. He's changing your desires. He's making you holy. He's making you the image of the Son, right? Yet, in a way, he does this with, yet there's no way that the conflict doesn't do that with fear and trembling. There's a holy fear that should well up inside of you when you realize that God is changing you into the image of his Son. I think that, The way that I think about this is that I fear because I don't know what he's going to do or what he's going to make me go through, (laughs) right? There is a sense in which uh, trusting the Lord, it means trusting him when you're Abraham and you have to go someplace that you've never seen, right? Or if you're Joseph and you're trapped inside of a prison. Not that we're those people, but you know what I mean. You're in those situations. The second concept about this, what does it mean to fear God, comes from Nehemiah 1.11 says, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. So it's a strange mixture, right? Delight to fear your name. We, we see this uh, elsewhere in Scripture, too. This fearing God is delightful. Not only is fear of God not in conflict with God being, uh, being our Father and we're his children, it's not in conflict with our joy either. Let me hit uh, three other passages to explain the fear of God, and then I'll try to pull it together. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen it says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Psalm thirty-one nineteen says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind." So here, you have kind of a mixture of fearing God and taking refuge in God in the same way. Psalm 147.11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Somewhere, somewhat similar to Psalm 31, but now we're seeing that fearing God isn't just making God refuge, but also hope. Right? God's our hope, he's our refuge. Um I was thinking about this, and there's there's a lot of examples that I was trying to find, like analogies, things that you could you, you, we could use. John Piper has one that's interesting. He's like, if you're in a storm, um, and the, the storm's raging all around you, but you find like a rock or a cave and it's refuge in the middle of it, then you you go there and you're you're in the midst of of this fearful thing, but you're being protected. It's a refuge. Um, I was thinking of more of a biblical example. Um, I thought of like, you know, think about the Red Sea being parted. Everyone knows that story, right? Moses parts the Red Sea and they have to walk through. The children of Israel have to walk through. They're being pursued by an enemy, right? So they have real, no real choice, right? They get to this thing and they have to go through. But if you're going through, it'd be a pretty fearful thing. You're seeing walls of water on either side of you, it's scary. What if God just decides, nah, you aren't my people anyway. <laughs> just like, let's it go, right? You all die. So you're kind of in the middle of it and you're terrified, but at the same time, you have to trust in God. He has to be your refuge. He has to be your hope. You have to, sit to think to yourself, God never lies. He told me he's going to preserve me through this, so I'm going to trust him, right? And you move through that terrifying thing. I don't think that, well, maybe kids weren't scared. Maybe they're just fascinated, but I think any adult that understands physics would be like, uh, it's huge. You know, I, there's actually a picture of, um, now, there's a, a, a film called uh, Prince of Egypt, if you once heard it, seen it. And there's a part where there's like a whale swimming through the water. I don't think there's whales in the Red Sea, but it's a cool image, right? It's just, it shows how deep that, that uh, body of water is because it's massively deep. So it's, it's an amazing thing. And the same thing, I was, you know, so that to me a, is a better analogy of this fear, refuge, hope in God altogether. So the fear of God is animated by this, uh, by the power and the wrath of God, right? Our understanding That he's all-powerful, that he has wrath towards sin, and that he judges people. Even though we know that in Christ, that judgment will fall on Jesus instead of us, or has, rather, fear of God involves humble submission, understanding of that. And knowing both the terror and the love of God, fear of God puts in, we put our hope in him, making him our refuge. And so to fear God for the Christian is a delight. We delight in it because in a sense, we serve this amazing creator, but he's also decided to pardon us in an, in an amazing way that if we trust in him, if we put our hope in him, if, we've, if he's our refuge, then we are p- being protected also from this amazing power that could, like Jesus said, you know, destroy both the body and the soul in hell. So the, the, the definition that uh, the John Piper came up with is reverent submission that leads to obedient trust and worship. Um, I, I can give that to you later if you'd like. Um, I don't know if it fully encapsulates it. I think it's like, it's like the Trinity. It's very hard to encapsulate in one sentence or something that makes sense, but reverent submission, so submitting, that leads to this obedient trust in worship. After all, fear of God is better described than defined, right? It's like anything. It's like love or, or fear. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to fully describe it. It's, it almost needs paragraphs, right? to explain all the facets in which you can explain complex terms like that. It's better to read, like, say, the final chapters of Job, right, where God's questioning Job, or Revelation, and you see, like, the culmination of all those things happening, right? That's, it, that's more uh, of an understanding of the fear of God. So Psalm 33, eight says, Let all the earth fear the Lord, and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. There is a, there is a command that we should fear the Lord. Any questions or comments on that introduction? So, that's what it means to fear God, super fast, something we all should do. But that leads to an important question, which is point two, why should we fear God? And as you see there, the answer comes in three categories. I assume that you want, well, I should say this, let us all assume we, all, we want to fear God. And In the next few minutes, don't tune out uh, if you're already convinced about that. I want to I wanna break this down so that way you'll be able to explain it to other people, because this question will come up. So first category, as image bearers of God, we are designed to fear God. This is a, uh, I've made this analogy before, and it's something that um, I probably got from someplace else, but it's the idea that everything that's made has a reason to be made, right? You don't build a chair just for it to sit there. You don't build a table for it to sit there. Nothing that's created ever was created just because. Even people that create splatters of paint that have no picture that you can discern. They did that so that they could either make money or they were thinking they were being creative in some way, right? There was a desire to create something creative, even if the trying to create something that wasn't specific, if that makes sense. So in the same way, if we're asking all things are being created for a reason, why was the universe created? Why was the earth created, right? Why was man created? We're made in the image of God. Why did God make us? And John Piper gives the best answer to this. Uh, I think it's John MacArthur too, says the same thing. And that's this idea that we were created to worship, John macarthur has a great book called worship and that's what he talks about he's like we were created to worship god that's why when people don't worship god they pick something else to worship because it's ingrained in us we have to worship something right that's what we're made to do and in the same way that you could i guess hammer nails with the chair instead of sitting in it there can be other things that you do with your purpose but it won't make any sense it'll look odd right so in the same way if we choose not to worship god we're not going to, it's not going to fit. It's not going to feel right. And that's why people go from worshiping one thing to another. It might be, I worship having the perfect family, right? I want that to be the thing. I submit all of my will and my energy into doing that. Maybe it's my job. I need to make money. Or maybe it, it is some other foreign deity of some sort because it fulfills some sense of something that I want. I want to become my own God, right? Or um, I want to be annihilated with Buddhism, like we talked about in the other couple things, right? There, there's, there's something you're doing. In the same way, I believe that God created us to worship him. Uh, as the Westminster Catechism says, we were, we were made to enjoy God. Or, uh, <laughs> no, I can't remember it. Who knows the, the first question? What's the chief end of man? That's yes, Michael. What's uh, to God. That's what it is. That's the part I was missing. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right. And in that, if God commands us to uh, fear him, there's, there's glory in that. So when God created man in his own image in Genesis, and he created the male and female, he created them for a reason, to to go out to the earth and submit it, right? That's that's the command he gave. And the idea here is that we were designed to serve him, right? And you see what happens when they broke that command. They feared God in a, not in a reverent way, but in a, oh no, we're in big trouble, right? There's destruction that could happen here. Especially since he said, in that day, you will surely die. Now, there's un, unwritten stuff in there. Like, you see that he gives them animal skins. Uh, pastor has said maybe he was the first one, well, maybe. We have to say maybe because we don't know, right? It's not explicit. But there, maybe there was animal, animal sacrifice even back then, where he made these animal skins and clothed them with it, and then he taught them how to animal sacrifice in order to cover sin, and that's why he didn't destroy them on that day when they sinned. So that's the first category, that we were created to fear God. Second category, he's worthy of our fear. He's worthy of our obedience and worship. And then I think there's a long section of uh, verses I have here, but I'm just going to read a couple. Psalm 89, 7. Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? And Psalm 90, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you." We fear God because he is awesome. We fear God because he is awesome in his wrath and his terror. It's kind of crazy to think about, like, the way we say it. Even when I was doing this study, I felt like my mind was rebelling against this. Like I guess it's just because of the Christianity I grew up, I grew up Pentecostal, and I grew up not reading a lot of the Bible. And this is not something, I think that we reference this, like I said, we always escape hatch this into the reverence of God. But when you read these passages, you see it's all over the Bible. This idea that we fear him because of the wrath, like directed to the Egyptians, where he closed the waters and destroyed them, the the plagues of God, right? The even when you think about Noah, you know it's weird that as a kid I grew up with Noah and the ark, and all the animals are happy and all Noah's happy, right? They're all smiling. It's like my mom had a plate that was painted and had all this. But that's actually kind of a terrifying story. When you think about it, it said that the intentions of man's heart was wicked from their, from their youth, right? They were evil. And God regretted making man on the earth and destroyed them all. It's not, a, it's not a, it's, I guess it's not a cheerful story, right? <laughs> Even though we make it into a cheerful story. And I think it's one of those things where yes, Noah was saved. And yes, we want to see ourselves as Noah and his family being preserved by God through great mercy and grace. And that is true. That's a beautiful thing. But at the same time, we have to understand that other than the mercy and the grace of God, we are the people on the ground, not in the boat. Right? That's, we have to be humble, and we have to understand that. Um, whenever you look back in the past, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Right? Whenever you look in the past, you see these horrendous things that happen, and you think, "Oh, I'd be one of the good guys." Would you really? Without God and Christ in your life, would you be a good guy, or would you be one of the ninety-nine percent of people that did what exactly what everyone else did? right? Doesn't matter what nation or thing you're thinking of. Every nation's had this kind of evil in their heart continually since their youth, right? So, if I've been saved from God's wrath, right? If I'm, if I'm like that, Noah, why should I fear God's wrath, right? If Christ has forgiven me, why would I fear? And Hebrew answer, addresses that several times. One good example is the end of Hebrews 12. It's Hebrews 12, uh, verse 28 through 29. It says this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So here you have all of those things we've talked about brought together, right? We reverence God, he is holy, we have awe, and yet we understand that he is a consuming fire. We are grateful for the grace that God has made us we are grateful that he has made us sons and daughters of the king rather than being judged by the king. But that should not short-circuit the right orientation of our lives and our affections towards the judge of the earth. He is a consuming fire. He is worthy of our fear. And that both spurns us to worship and protects us from wandering away from God. Um, another analogy that I thought of, some people might disagree with this, but maybe it's, it was a thought experiment was this idea that, um, I was thinking of a lion, but no, I'm thinking of like Aslan the lion, right? A lion that can talk. Um, or maybe your dad, if you had a good dad. So say you have a good dad, because I can't assume that unfortunately in this day and age, or you know, you think of Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. And in, in a sense, they are kind and they gentle and they love you. But if you step out of line, you're going to get disciplined, right? There is a fear that keeps you from doing the wrong thing, right, from stepping out of line. From talking back or being disrespectful to your mom, right? There is this tension, where you love your father, or you would love Aslan, but you never pull his tail, right? <laughs> like you, would, no one would do that, right? And it's a sense because you understand that he's not tame. He's not a tame lion, right? <laughs> he's he's going to react the way that he's that his crea- that he's uh, created to be. Um. So that gets us back to uh, this idea. We fear God because it's good for us to fear God. It's the last thing, right? This is the thing that's always weird, is that when you when you think about how you've grown up in the world, at least it's weird for me, because you're grown up and you're thinking, what's the highest good of man, right? And what is the best thing in the world? And it would be things like reduce pain, right? Well, if we just make sure everyone's happy and no one has pain, that's a good thing. Or if we think about um, gaining a better life than our kids did and giving them a better life. like these platitude things that we think about, right, that you hear people say. But if what the Bible says is true, and it is, that we are created to serve God, that we are created to worship God, and in that we will actually find the greatest fulfillment and happiness, then in likewise, because it seems weird, right, we're created to serve. I don't want to be a servant, right? It's like uh, Milton said, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, right? That's the reaction of the devil in, in that book. And people would agree with that, right? That's like how atheists talk. But that's not true. The happiest you will be is in serving God. That's what the Bible says. The happiest you will be is in fearing the Lord. That's what the Bible says. It says in Psalm 111.10, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It also says that in Proverbs 1.7. I'm sure you've heard of that. The entire book of Proverbs cannot be understood unless you understand that first, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Psalm 115, he is a help and a shield to those who fear him. And Psalm 115, verse 13, he will bless those who fear him. So, uh, like I said, I, p- I put a lot of uh, references there, and we're just going to move on, but look up those, that they're all, they're all filled with that. So, before we move on, is there any other questions? I know we have a couple more people. Michael. Yeah, so, something I've struggled with a little bit when it comes to the topic of the fear of the Lord is... So I agree with like the discipline passages that like totally makes sense to me, right? Like God is a loving Father, so he's going to discipline you uh, if you like transgress the commandment. Right. But when it comes to like that passage that you quoted earlier, Matthew 5, yeah. it says, uh, don't fear man, but fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Mm-hmm. Is that is there a reality in which believers are supposed to fear hell as a motivation should believers fear hell as a motivation for obedience? I would say that passage, I think, is specifically talking about, because once again, when Jesus is talking, he's talking in such a way that he knows people are going to hear him that don't believe. right? So when we see those, those discipline and judgment passages referencing two Christians, right? Hebrews 6, Matthew 5, we understand that there's a mixture of people hearing it, people that really believe and people that don't. And people that don't need to hear that. Right? When, when Rolo stands up here and he says something very similar to that, he'll say today is the day of salvation, repent and believe. Right? Because he understands there might be people here that have sat there for their entire lives right? um, and they don't believe. Right? They just, it's easy to pretend or whatever it is. So the, in that sense, there is a motivation. right? You're fearing what people will think of you in whatever context you're doing that. But it's better to fear God because he's the one who's going to judge you at the end. Now, in terms of the Christian fearing God, there is no motivation there because we're set free from that, right? And I think that's where you marry the passage where it says that perfect love casts out fear, right? Because if you perfectly love God in the sense that you fear him correctly, right, you're going to read the word and you're going to understand it and you're going to do it. And in that, there's no fear because you're walking right. There's a passage from Peter that that I'm reminded of, and it talks about the virtues. Um, You know, peace, love, patience, kindness very similar to Paul's passage, and he says, if you're doing these things, you don't have to worry about the law. Because the idea, if you're doing all those things, you're doing everything right, right? So if you're pursuing these, these virtues, you don't have to worry about, am, am I following all 600 laws, you know, perfectly, however it is, because you understand that you're, you're walking rightly. So good. good question, any other questions? Sheila. I want to comment on that. Um, so disobedience, when we're walking in disobedience, It shows that we have no assurance of our salvation at that time, correct? I would say um, if you're in continual disobedience, yes. Right, yeah. We can not be assured of our salvation if we think that we're Christians and we continue. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think in that way, it could be a fear that's legitimate for the Christian. Yes. And that you don't have the assurance, so you can sit there and think about hell and say, am I really a Christian? Mm -hmm. I'm on board where I need to be. Right. No, yeah, and if no one heard Sheila's comment, she was saying that if you're living in a habitual sin, an unrepentant sin, you're going to lose your assurance of salvation. Am I really a Christian? Right? And in that sense, I think that the fear of the Lord, the fear of punishment, is something that would motivate you to get right. And that's why I think we we quoted that other pastor where it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? I think that's where it is, where you're saying, What's my motivation? Do I really want to repent? Do I want to tell someone? is telling someone so that they can pray with me and hold me accountable more important to me than how they view me, right? Michael? Yeah, so, that, so that, that point where someone who says that they profess faith in Christ, let's say they're living in continual habitual sin, at what point should they start to question their salvation? Immediately, I would say. <laughs> if it's habitual, they've already done it a few times, right? Whatever it is, right? If you, I would say if it's something that's gone on for you know, a while, like weeks, months, and especially if they're not telling anyone, Because then that becomes a fear of man issue for sure, right? Um, And the thing is, um, let's be honest, I think each one of us has had a hidden sin at least once in our lives, or maybe we have one right now, right? That's not something uncommon to man, to have a hidden sin that you want to have. And it could be something like, we did a study a little while back called respectable sins, and it was things like gossip, and slander, and hating your brother in your heart, right? There are sins that are bigger than just the big ones that we think of, like, oh, I have a pornography addiction. That's easy, right? In terms of, like, uh, assuming that that happens. But just because you don't have that, I have victory over this sin, and great. It doesn't mean that you don't have other sins that are still happening. Now, this is where balance becomes an issue, because if we're honest, each one of us probably has a blind spot sin. A sin we have that the Lord is going to bring up in our sanctification and he's going to work through that and we're going to have to repent of that sin and grow to be more like Christ, right? So each one of us is on a path in holiness and we're, we don't know the blind spot sins that we have. But that's different than knowing it's there and not addressing it, right? Right, and I, the reason that I ask that is because, so would, would that mean that eventually then a true believer would hit the point to where they no longer have to Will a a true believer hit the point where they won't have any habitual sins? Um, Yes and no. I mean, it's it's each person's individual. I think that there are people that can die in a habitual sin and still go to heaven. Because the fact is, like I said, just because you weren't aware of a habitual sin, because it's a blind spot for you, doesn't mean you weren't doing it. Christ saves us from everything, past, present, and future. That's the grace of God. It's almost like people, even Paul says it this way. He says, when you preach the true gospel, it sounds like lawlessness right? It sounds like antinomianism. We're not saying that. You, have to fo- you should follow law. That's pleasing to God. But it sounds like so gracious that we're like, what? This person was in this habitual sin and they died in it and they're still saved? And that's what the Bible says. So praise God for that. We have mercy. We don't have to be perfect when we die. But I would say that you're going to lose things like you're going to lose blessings from God. I think that if it says in the Bible that what father doesn't discipline his son if he loves him, right? So there's a sense in which if you're in habitual sin. It's going to come as, if you don't repent, I think it's going to come as the Lord is going to discipline you, right? There's going to be effects in your life. You're going to lose things, right? And that's going to be to strip away all the things in your life so that way only, all, the only thing you have left is God, right? That's the way I look at it. So when things have happened to me, I'm like, there's something here, you know, in terms of like, I don't understand it yet, but there's a reason why these things are happening. And that's why I'm always like, Lord, is there a sin that I need to repent of? Is there something I need to come to you? Is it? Is it I, I'm not spending enough time with you? What's going on? And even then, you know, you can't look for a boogeyman around every corner. That's part of trusting God, too, right? Is that And sometimes it's, Job didn't do anything wrong, right? Job was a righteous man. Nothing happened to him that said, it said well, God was like, Have you considered my my servant Job? You know, he has a habitual sin in his life. He really needs to have something happen to him, right? No, it's God was using Job for a mighty thing. In a way, we're talking about serving God, being made to serve God, being made to glorify God. Job is a picture of that, right? He lived a situation that's horrible, but he never turned his back on God. And that now is an example to all of us that even when we don't understand the things happening to us, if the devil's just striking us for no reason of our own, Yet we will praise the Lord because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So let's move on. Um, It's great, great questions, but let's get this last part. So we have every reason in the world to fear God. But of course, we don't. Not always, at least. Why not? And this is the hardest part of the lesson, right? I was considering this in my own life and I was praying this week. I'm like, why don't I always fear God? Why, why, Why are we so forgetful that we get focused on so many other things other than how we think about God, making sure that we're spending time with God. Um, when we're looking at situations, thinking first, what is the most glorifying to God in this situation, right? Um, training ourselves to harness and in con- self- self-control harness our, things like, our sinful impulses like anger and lashing out and impatience. In short, we don't fear God because of our choice as the human race is to sin, right? Um, starting with Adam and Eve and going through. Uh, and in Romans uh, one twenty three it says, We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We made the worst exchange imaginable, choosing to reject the worship and the fear of God to worship and fear his creation instead. And now our lives aren't oriented correctly around him, so they're oriented around the things that he's made. So the irony of this is that the people that should fear the wrath of God the most is sinners, right? Like us. That's who. But why is it that we don't fear God? Because of our sin. So you see the circle, right? We should fear him because of our sin, but we don't because of our sin. So it's, it's, a, it's a destructive circle. And that's actually one of the things that I found is that you'll sin, and the, the first thing you should do is go and repent, right? You should go to God immediately, right? You should try to shorten that time period of repentance down to almost immediate, but a lot of the times we'll be filled with shame, and we'll be like Adam and Eve, and we'll go hide, or we'll ignore it, like it didn't happen, and we won't repent, and then it builds up, and then it happens again, and then it gets worse, and then we're like, oh, you know, uh, even <laughs> the joke is even like people will say things like, I'm gonna read the Bible every day, and then you miss one day, and you're like, well, I'm gonna read twice as much, right? I'm gonna read two days, and then you, you know, things, life happens, you don't read for six days, I'm like, wow, I got a whole week of reading on Sunday I need to do, right? Three hours of reading, here we go, right? And you don't do it, and then you realize that your your commitments and your, your best intentions weren't good enough, right? And then you feel horrible, and then you say, you just give up, right? And so the, in the same way with that, with that small example, I think that happens all the time, right? We, we go through this cycle of hiding so we don't have to repent when we should. So even in the fall, we see not just the alienation from God but the alienation from each other, right? Adam blames his wife and the curse is on them Is division of marriage, right? There's a fear of each other's power, the power struggle that's going to happen between the two, fear of rejection. So instead of giving life, the image bearers will turn on each other as we see in the first act of murder when Cain kills his brother Abel. So the fall is cataclysmic. It changed everything in the scripture. The the creatures were now naked and exposed. They were living, but they're spiritually dead. They are human, yet they have a damaged key piece of what it means to be human. The fear of man comes because of sin. And that's the crucial point not to miss. It's not like we can't fear nothing. We're going to fear something in the same way that we will worship something. And so either we fear God, correctly, or we fear man. So, um, the next point, I think... if if I remember correctly, (laughs) is that um, as tragic as this is, there is a Savior. The problem is inside of us, and the solution is outside, and that's Christ. Jesus feared God perfectly in a way that we couldn't. He did for us what we were created to do, right? Serve God perfectly. That's why he lived 33 years. He didn't just come at 33 die on the cross, right? He was born as a child and then lived a perfect, God-fearing life his entire life. Then he gave us the great exchange. He exchanged us that perfect righteousness, not just in death, but his, his lived perfect life is attributed to us as we lived it. And then he took on our sin, our life, and died the death we should die. So just as in Adam we all sin, so in Christ, for those who repent and believe, all are made righteous. That means that even though we were naked as sinners before God, in Christ we are clothed in righteousness, is the the picture that the Bible uses. So we should meditate on the righteousness and the redemption provided through Christ. You should rightly fear God because of how you rejected and defamed him. But in Christ, you can now fear him as one who loves you. Putting that together, or trying to. Like I said, it's it's kind of a mind bend for me too, this idea that we love him, we serve him, and yet we fear him in some kind of way, like we were trying to distinguish—not in a hell way, but in a um, wanting to serve him correctly. So, what can happen when we, when, uh, what can happen when we being to forget this truth that the fear of man came because of our choice of sin? I want to talk about that. We we've asked why we should fear him and why we don't. And now we're trying to wrap up, what does it look like? What does the fear of God look like, right? So how does the Bible describe it, and how can we try to align our actions and our thoughts in such a way that we can be fearing God correctly, right? So this is the practical kind of portion of it. And this is difficult in the same way that trying to talk about love is difficult, right? It's like, what does love look like? And the, the famous love chapter in Corinthians talks about that, Like love is kind, love is patience, love doesn't insist on its own way. So it gives us pictures of what that looks like so we can try to align ourselves to being loving, which the easy way to sum up loving is to look for the best for another person, right? So when you love your child, even if you discipline them, it's the best thing for them. When you love, uh, you know, your spouse, you love them even in their, all, their imperfections of how they are, right? Because they're a sinner just like you. So, and you talk about that um, love covers a multitude of sins, right? Because people can't repent and ask forgiveness for every single sin that they do, right? So you understand that unless it's something that really is a problem and you need to hash it out, you're allowing for a person to be mad. You're allowing for a person to be impatient. You're allowing a person to be cranky or to be frustrated or to be afraid of the future, whatever it is. And you encourage them through that, right? You love them through that. Even though all of those things are sins, we still love people through them and we encourage them and we weep with those who weep, right? Right? So go through my notes here. OK, then. Some examples. So there's a, little, a list of, of uh, people that feared God. I don't think though, I think we've kind of covered this to a degree. I will say this. I, when you think about people that feared God more than man, there's a lot of people that did that, right? Um, Noah, Abraham, um, Even, I would say, Joseph Mary. Difficult situation to be in. Paul. Peter. Right? You can read Hebrews 11, the list of heroes of the faith, and you can see all of these people had very difficult choices to make on if they were going to fear man or if they were going to fear God. They chose God. And the reason why those Old Testament and new examples are in the scripture is to give us an example, to encourage us, that even if we can't see five, six, ten years into the future, fearing the Lord and serving him is the best thing for us. So, the, the example here, when we think about the holiness of God and how we, to, how we are to fear God, I think a good example, this once again is from John Piper, is that only a greater fear can drive out a lesser fear. The worst thing you can do, and I, I think that we've probably been maybe in some work trainings where they'll do this, where they say, okay, don't think of something like, don't think of a red hammer and then you immediately think of a red hammer. So the only way that you can not do that is by fulfilling, putting something else in its place, right? You have to think of, like, I don't know, a green screwdriver or something like that, right? You have to, like, replace something with something else. You can't just tell someone, don't do this. You have to say, do this instead, right? Stop worshiping that false idol. Okay, I stop doing that. And then they're going to find another idol to worship, right? Unless you say, fear the Lord, worship the Lord. So uh, another example that uh, Piper gave was, he's like, if you're in a tent in the middle of the woods and you're about to sin with a significant other, something that you're not married to, and you hear a bear roar, do you think that you're going to still want to do the sin <laughs> that in the tent? Right, no. There's a giant bear out there. All of a sudden, you're filled with fear and your priorities shift in a moment, right? And I thought it was a great analogy, and I've thought of that. You know, I'm like, okay, if I'm about to sin, I just have to imagine the Lord as a bear or a lion or something, right? There is a sense in which there's danger here, Not danger necessarily from God, although that's what we're talking about, but rather danger of the consequences of the sin you're about to do, right? There are consequences. Uh, Every single lie that the devil tells us about our sin is that the sin is small and insignificant and won't have any lasting consequences, right? Just one drink, I'm not saying drinking is bad, but if you have an addictive personality, Wondering is that's all it's ever gonna be. It's never gonna grow into something else, right? Drugs is just small. It's never gonna grow into anything else. Pornography is just small. It will never grow into anything else. Even though the ends of all those things could be divorce from your spouse, a fractured family, not seeing your children, all kinds of things can come from those things, right? It always starts small and it seems like I can keep this hidden. It won't have any lasting consequences and it will blow up into something much bigger. And uh, I think it's numbers 32, 23, where it says that, um, I should probably read. I'm going to misquote it now. I just remember. I always remember it because they had that movie, uh, the number (laughs) twenty-three, and he sees twenty-three everywhere, and it's odd and weird. But the very end of the movie is um, is this passage from. uh, So that's why I always I always remember it. It says, "Behold, but if you will," uh, it says it says basically to fear the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out right sin will come to the surface you can't hide it forever people deceive themselves thinking that they will always be able to hide the sin they're struggling with but eventually it will come out so only a greater fear will drive out a lesser fear and we worship that which we fear the most our main concern should not be finding solutions so to say of our feared man but rather seeking to have a deeper fear of the lord so we're trying to orient our way ourselves that way So how do we grow in this fear of the Lord? Um, Number one, you have to learn about who the Bible teaches that God is. And don't shy away from the passages that describe his justice, his wrath, his power, his anger against sin. Sometimes as Christians, we only focus on um, the reconciliation passages of God's love, which is a good thing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't major in those things. But if we do, we lose a powerful thrust of the Bible that helps us grow in the fear of the Lord. God is a consuming fire. That is something that we have to pair together, you know. I I saw something recently. Uh, it was this week, and it was it was interesting. You always hear this reference to a prayer warrior, right? He's a prayer warrior. He he prays all the time, and I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But the only described weapon in the Bible is the sword of the Spirit, right? There there is a sense in which which is the Word of God. You have to know the Bible to be able to be a warrior, right? I'm not saying that prayer isn't something that uh, the prayer of a righteous person avails much. I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm saying that you need to know what the Bible says about God. The God of the Bible is revealed as holy, majestic, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing. He's everywhere and always present. He's merciful, kind, faithful, loving, but he's also jealous, and he's just and wrathful. So a few books apart, uh, apart from scripture, that are great start points, the uh, ones that I've referenced here are The Pleasures of God by John Piper and Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, and like you said, like I've always said, you can always come to, to, get, to talk to me if you want those references. I don't know if they're on your list. Among those lines, observe God's goodness in your Bible and in your life. So you're growing in the fear of the Lord for who he is, his awe, his majesty, all things he created. And the more you're overwhelmed both by God's terror and his goodness, the more you'll fear him rightly. When you read the passages in the Bible of him judging the earth in various ways and you take that seriously, that's going to orient you correctly in the the fear of God. Number three, don't run away from your own sin, right? Instead of minimizing our sin, becoming defensive, deciding to just forget and move on, we need to honestly confess our sin before God. We need to consider the root of the sin in our hearts, what's causing this, and then run to the cross for forgiveness. By better understanding your own sin, you will better understand God's love for you and you will grow in your fear for him. And the last one is repent of pride. Our pride goes deeper than any of us could imagine. It is rooted in the very fabric of who we are as rebels against God. It completely distorts reality as it tempts us to make much more of ourselves and so very little of the sovereign God, right? We think of ourselves first. This is um, the root of idolatry. So, Any questions about this? I know we've covered a lot. Questions, comments? Conclusion. To fear God is to reverently submit to him in such a way that leads to obedience and worship. It is to happily and joyfully obey him. To fear God is the beginning of wisdom. God alone can bear the weight of your deepest longings. He He alone receives the worship that you were created to give him. So let us fear God. So, ended a little bit early. So, if anyone has any questions or comments, we can do that, or we can pray and be done. Michael. Um, so, when, I, when I've looked at like different resources that talk about like, sanctification and things like that, I've seen that across different what, Christian denominations, there's like disagreement about the motivation. or reasons. Yeah. So, when you talk about like the fear of the Lord, would you place? fear of the punishment for sin is like the primary motivation, you would say, for the believer as a motivator for obedience? So um, if anyone uh, didn't hear what Michael was saying, he, I'll just repeat the question. He was saying that um, he's read a lot of books about motivating yourself for your obedience in terms of sanctification. Like, how do you motivate yourself to be obedient, right? And he was saying, how do we, how does fear fit into that? Um, I would say that, yes, I think that fear of Punishment for sin in terms of hell is the primary motivator to start you, but then fear of, I would say discipline, is not a bad fear to have. Uh, Controversial topic, because there's a lot of talk about this all the time, about if you should spank your kids or not, or use the rod, right? The Bible says if a person who spares a rod hates their child, it's a very tough thing. It's like, it's easy just to say that and then to move on. I'm not saying the rod has to be used for everything. I have to clarify that because people will come up to me and say, you say, beat your kids. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there is a lesson in the rod, and I think the lesson is fear of consequences, right? It's an immediate consequence that no one wants to feel. Um, in Singapore, they have a very low crime rate, and one of the things that they do is all the cops travel around in like four, four people. And if you commit a crime in the middle of the street, there's no, oh, we're going to bring you in. It's like you had four witnesses. They're going to cane you in the street. 10 canes, bam, right there, right? Uh, my friend told me this story because he's in the Navy and his buddy was harassing a woman in the middle of the street and the cops saw it and they grabbed him and they caned him right there and he went and he cried to his, you know, the, his uh, superior on the ship and they were like, you broke the rule of the land. That's what happened, right? And every person in the Navy that saw that was very respectful after that, right? So in the sense, there is a fear of consequences that we should be teaching our children in a loving way as much as possible because we don't want them to go out there and end up in a consequence that's much more severe, right? That's the reason for it. Now, if your child doesn't need that, praise God. Praise God that they have a natural fear of the Lord, a natural fear of consequences, they don't need it. Doesn't it not every child needs it, and not every child responds to it. But instilling some kind of a fear of consequence is important for us. And in the same way, a fear of God comes from that consequence. What's the consequences for my sin? It's not just the natural effects we were talking about, right? a broken marriage or something that will happen, but rather the breakdown of our own connection with God, right? Because that sin sits in front of you and God, that connection is tenuous. And then Sheila was saying, you lose your assurance. And you're like, am I really saved? And now you're in hopelessness, right? Even if you really are saved, but now you're struggling with, with all these things. You can't tell anyone because now you have to hide it because you're a, a Christian that has no problems, right? It, it becomes a, a snowball effect. And that's exactly what the devil wants, to make us completely ineffective in the kingdom. How can you go tell anyone about Jesus if you have all this garbage that you can't repent of and tell anyone, right? Um, this is something that is great, having a wife, because I can, I can <laughs> repent to her, right? And I, I can trust her in a way. I, it, but it was sad when I was single. It was something I think we really struggle with in the American church, being able to find someone we trust to say, I'm struggling with this. I need prayer for this. And don't tell anyone, right? I think this is where the Catholics kind of have something nice. I will not say that with many things. But having a confession booth where that guy can't tell anyone is nice right? Um, Pastor Rollo and and Ed actually do, uh, you know, they do counseling and stuff like that, and they will hear those things, and they won't tell anyone, but they're also very busy, and it's hard to find time for them. You're like, do I really want to bother them with this small thing I'm going through, right? I think we all feel that way sometimes, and so we need to find people in the body that we can trust on that level, right, and and talk about it, so I I kind of mandered a little bit, but hopefully that helps you in that the motivation for sin uh the motivation to be obedient i think yes comes from fear of consequences but natural consequences how god will discipline us to make us more like him but i think ultimately our our obedience has to be rooted in the love of god and the great mercy of god right when we see how much grace he's had towards us we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day he loved me, not because of something I did, but because of his great love. This steadfast love, this, this almost alien love that it talks about in the Bible that we can't even comprehend. If no one has any other question, I'll talk about something philosophical. That way I'll put you all asleep. <laughs> yes, brother. <laughs> From we're understanding Catholicism, uh, they do their confessions uh, so that they can shave off their sins. Right like, shave off, like, the years of purgatory and all these things. Right. get like, yeah, to God and all these things. So, like, the, the problem with that is, like, the motivation's skewed. Oh, you know? absolutely. So. You know, yeah, he was saying that the reason why people confess in Catholicism is to shave off sin and, and purgatory and things like that, which is true, right? Time purgatory. Yeah, time off purgatory because you have to do hundreds of years, right? And I would say that's true, but in the same way that sometimes, like, let me make an analogy. That's, that's interesting. So I, I heard out that one of the only Western nations that's above replacement rate in terms of fertility is Israel. Like, they're having, like, I think their, their fertility rate's, like, at three. And, yeah, it's crazy. Our, ours is at 1.2 by comparison. That means for every two people, they're only having one kid. But in Israel, they're having, like, three. Now, the interesting thing was that the, uh, the high-level, like, the, the believing Jews not many of them, but the believing Jews in terms of like uh, the people that b- I should say not believing like in terms of the Lord, but believing in terms of they believe the religion is true, they're having like seven kids. The next one down are having like five, but the unbelievers in Israel are having three. And the reason why is because they're around this culture that says having children is good, they're a blessing from God, and by osmosis, by being in that culture, they still benefit from that, right? Whereas in our culture, it's more of like kids are a net loss, right? They, they cost a lot of money, they cost a lot of time, uh, all these issues, and that's kind of what the culture, uh, does, you know, tells us. So we're fighting kind of uphill against this, this wave. So in the analogy, my analogy is this, even if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, confessing your sin still is a net benefit, right? So even though these people are going to this because they're trying to do all these exterior motivations, by doing it, they'll actually feel better for confessing their sins and feeling they're right with God, even if that's not true. Do you know I mean, because it's a work, They're working towards being right with God. But that's what everyone's trying to do with religion. That's why people are still religious even if they don't really believe. It's because they're trying to find some way to feel right with the things that they've done. So, uh, any other questions, comments? Great. Well, um, we're running out of time, but if uh, you guys have any questions or you want any references that I have in my notes, let me know. I think I put almost everything, but I don't think I put the resources like the stuff that I use to craft this in that. So, let me know. Let's close in prayer. Father God, once again, I thank you so much for your word. Your word above all, you have given us the ability to know who you are. And I pray that we would not take that lightly. In your word, you command us to fear you. And that is for our good. This is hard for us to comprehend and understand, but Lord, I pray that you would help us understand it. I pray that we would fear you. Not just in reverence and awe, although we want that too. But help us to fear you because you have all power. You can do anything. And in that, you can also make sure that we, um, you will discipline us. You will discipline those whom you love. We don't want to be disciplined. We want to do what's right. We want to be obedient. Teach us obedience in the kindest and gentlest way. But if we require stern obedience or st- uh, stern discipline, I pray that you would do that to us too. The most important thing is that we believe in Jesus and that we are forgiven our sins. We want to be with you. You are the gospel. You are the good news. To know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I pray, Father, that you would instill that into every single person who's hearing my voice. I pray, Father, that you would um, encourage us in this week to repent of our sins and to start that right relationship with you again. Or if we haven't repented of our sins, for Father, I pray that we would. We would trust in Jesus. Now as we go into the service, I pray that you would Keep our minds attentive to to worship in, in terms of singing, worship in terms of listening to the word. I pray that we would have our minds fully focused on you and not be distracted by the things of life. I pray that we would give you this time. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.